Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustain Our Software, the podcast where we talk about softwareing our sustain or the other way around. Today, we have a few people on. We have Pia Mancini. Hey, everyone. Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. Myself, Richard. Hi. And also Kevin Owaki. Close. That's the traditional Polish pronunciation. Uh, Kevin Owaki. Owaki. Sweet. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Kevin, you're coming here from GitFund, Gitcoin? Which one? Gitcoin. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Gitcoin is a place that you can get coins if you're a software developer. We built a double-sided market that connects coders, people who are writing open source software with people who want to consume that software and pay them in coins, get coins. And let's see, we never did an ICO. We've just been focused on achieving product market fit in the wonderful, weird, wide world of, of the Ethereum space. And the organization and the network is built around our mission, which is to grow and sustain open source software. That's awesome. That's super relevant and concise. So Gitcoin, is it, it's not a coin itself. You, you just use Ethereum coins for that? Yeah. So uh, the amazing thing about Ethereum, we're going to go down the blockchain rabbit hole really, really quick. <laughs> so we'll get out of it. We'll get out of it. But just, just go for a bit and then we'll come back. So Bitcoin's fundamental innovation was that you can send money across the internet without a centralized intermediary. And uh, Ethereum, which is the number two crypto network in the world, it can do that arguably faster and cheaper depending on who you you talk to. But there's also this concept of smart contracts. So you can program your values into your money. You can program a bunch of different use cases into your money. And the specific use case that we launched with was an open source bounty platform that allows you to, if you have a feature or a bug or a documentation request, you can put open up a GitHub issue and you can incentivize it with ETH or any ERC-20 token. And we'll source a coder from our network of 25,000-ish coders across the world who want to earn coins, maybe because they don't have access to the Western financial system, maybe because they want to get new intros in professional relationships, And we'll sort of facilitate that transfer. And the cool thing about Ethereum is that Bitcoin, the company, never touches that money. It's all escrowed on the smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. So uh, we made the choice very early on not to do our own coin, not to do our own blockchain. We're standing on the shoulders of giants of people in the Ethereum space. And the great thing about the Ethereum space is that there's actually funding for open source software. You have all this money that used to go to some back office on Wall Street in the old financial system that's now being built fundamentally on open source software in the new financial system. I'm using new in air quotes for the listeners on radio. And, and so I, I think it's been, it's been kind of cool to see all these software developers building new relationships and getting coins on, on Gitcoin. We just passed the $2 million mark. of wow. We have a suite of products, but we just passed $2 million that have gone through a network in the last 18 months. That's and awesome. 
Go Eric, ahead, yes. do you find that most of the funds are, or most of the bounties that get, do you call them bounties? Yeah, we call them bounties. Right, cool. So most of the bounties are, are for the Ethereum kind of ecosystem, or have you seen traction in other kind of non-crypto related open source projects? Just curious. Yeah, I, I think that our niche is, we're a pretty blockchain forward brand. I mean, Gitcoin is only one character off from Bitcoin. And I think that that sort of self-selects for people in the Ethereum space. And I don't have an exact number, but I will say that 80% of the of the bounties through the network are at least related to some sort of Web3 Ethereum project. But I guess this is a, probably a good time to interject that. So as I said at the top of the introduction, we're, our mission is to grow and sustain open source software. And the engineer in me likes to think about that as a funnel. I'm just really good at optimization problems because of all the time I've spent programming, or at least I'd like to think I am. And so you think about all the users of open source software, let's call it 0.1% of them ever become contributors to open source software. And then let's call it a tenth of them or a hundredth of them ever become maintainers of open source software. And There's a lot of reasons why there's that big of a drop off in the funnel. There's burnout. There's who has the time to contribute when you can just consume. And we can get into a lot of those problems. But when we first started the, the project, we realized that bounties is only solving for one step of that funnel. And arguably, it doesn't even completely solve that because, well, we can get into that. But, but so basically, bounties are good at taking users of open source and making them into contributors. Mm -hmm. And so from first principles... There's many ways to, to try to skin this cat to solve that problem. And about two years ago, I met uh, Eric Berry, who's hosting this podcast, actually on a podcast uh, episode that I was recording two years ago. And Eric was at the time running Code Sponsor, and I was just getting Gitcoin off the ground. And it's a long story, but basically we ended up deciding to work together. And now uh, Code Sponsor has become Code Fund. And CodeFund is really good at solving that problem of contributors becoming maintainers of open source software, at least staying maintainers of open source software. And it uses a completely different mechanism to create value for coders and ethical advertising. I mean, I'm proud of the work that we've done with Bounties, but I will say that the genesis of the project is more around the mission from first principles. And we have a couple of products that have sprouted up to support that mission. I guess, Eric, that's our disclosure that anything you say Uh, just disclosure that, that we work together in, in CodeFund and Gitcoin are partner projects. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I'm glad that you brought that up. I still look at Gitcoin as a completely separate company in a lot of ways in that it runs extremely different. It has different means and mechanisms to, to bring that funding to open source. And I've been hyper-focused on just what I work on and we are We are partners in Gitcoin, so full disclosure there. And I'm, because of that, I'm going to kind of keep, you know, not, not be a huge participant in this conversation. But I do want to introduce why we met up. So I remember I was in 2017, I was out in uh, San Francisco. I was working with Code Sponsor at the time. I was sponsoring um, uh, GitHub Universe. And I remember seeing a tweet of yours. And I, we started talking back and forth during this time, but you, you tweeted you were already starting to to hire people. And I was, I was floored on how that was possible, but also that you were focusing on the coin aspect. I just remember seeing there's a coin and then there's open source funding. And to me, I just thought, you know, the biggest problem that I had at the time, because we had over, over 600 people that were, we were paying is how do we get everybody paid 
very easily and programmatically without having to basically send an invoice to all 600 people. Massive, massive problem for, for me at the time. That's how I, I, I was introduced to you. And my passion behind the blockchain, and I guess is primarily right now, the biggest thing is, is the cryptocurrency aspect of it, where just distributing funds, microtransactions across a very broad audience is something that I believe is extremely important for open source funding. So that's how we connected. I'm going to back out of there, but I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just glad that we got connected and it's been fun trying to pull you down the blockchain rabbit hole over the last two years. I think we're starting to cross that event horizon, maybe. <laughs> For those who are older, it's like the, uh, I don't know if you remember that commercial of Life Serial where Mikey likes it. I think I'm the Mikey of the group. <laughs> you know, where the, Mikey likes the cereal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's worth mentioning that a lot has changed in the last few years. And back in 2017, there was insane, greedy ICO movement. And there was a lot of skepticism of blockchain. And so I think that there was a lot of get-rich-quick type personalities that came into that space and and probably left a stain on the reputation of, of the blockchain community. And... For me, I, I I think I always like to think about the incentives of, of who I'm listening to and whether or not I can sort of like trust the takes of various people in the space and what are they trying to sell me. I think that there was a lot of projects that, that came and went in, in that boom and took care took advantage of tokenization to sell assets to consumers. I like to separate the sort of manifestation of the technology from the actual fundamentals of the technology itself. So I think that the reason why I'm excited about blockchain is that the internet completely changed our lives because it's the ability for a group of computers to send information over a network and it changed everything that has to do with information in society, our media, our politics. And then blockchain, I think, has the potential to do that for our financial system because we can now send financial value or scarcity over a computer network. And so banking and jobs and Gaming and gambling are the obvious niches that that I can sort of see when I look forward with blockchain. But there's going to be boom and bust cycles because it's it's capitalism. And I think that I try to take a multi-decade time arc when I think about this. Because if you think about it, the internet, actually, it took 10 or 20 years for us to get a Twitter president and for, for us to completely change the business model of newspapers. And, and so I think that it's going to take several decades for this whole thing to play out. So I guess the TLDR is I just ask the audience not to discount the power of, of web three of what we're building with an open source financial system because of the 2017 boom and bust. It was just one sort of epoch in the growth of, of web three, in my opinion. Can I bring you back a little bit to Gitcoin? So I'm just super curious about, kind of the governance aspect of the bounty system and the bounty management system. Can you talk a little bit about like the mechanisms of it? Like I run up, I don't run, like my open collective team runs a, a bounty system for open collective. Yeah. It's tough for us to manage yeah. that. So I'm just curious about how you do it, what incentives you put in yeah. place, who's uh, putting the money, how the claims work. Can you get into that? For sure. Yeah. Happy to. So uh, Gitcoin, there's a lot of these crypto networks that sort of aim for decentralization and they have this governance structure where uh, it's there's a voting structure from at the network and company-wide level. We don't have any of that. We're just a corporation that's registered in Delaware and Gitcoin Core is what we're called. 
we run Gitcoin.co, which is the web property. And Gitcoin.co is 90% a, a Web2 application that you can OAuth in with GitHub, GitHub. And we've got some Ajax features. We've got a centralized server. But the primary innovation that blockchain is a, enables is the trustless escrow of money in between the funder and the coder. And so there's this contract on the Ethereum blockchain called Standard Bounties that my good friend Mark Balin built. And the whole idea was that we should have a standard for how we escrow money between a bounty hunter and someone who's funding it. And it should be secure and audited and well thought out and should it allow for all these nice features. And so we're one of the first adoption adopters of that open standard, uh, standard bounties. And basically the way it works is that you go on Gitcoin and there's this new bounty form that you can fill out at gitcoin.co slash new for us, we just think that GitHub issues is such a great issue management system that you just you just ingest it in a GitHub issue and it fills out all the metadata for you. And then we have a little button that allows you to attach ETH or any ERC20 tokens to the bounty. You click funds and this little smart contract wallet button pops up that allows you to escrow the money on chain and takes about 15 seconds for that transaction to clear on a good day sometimes a little bit more if the Ethereum network is closed, but it's alpha software. So um, you're sort of in the frontier when you're, when you're using it. The basic way it works is that, so once the, the money is escrowed on chain, then we instantly network it or we market it out to our network of tens of thousands of software engineers. This is actually like a really interesting societal problem. One of our things that we want to do is we want to make it as easy for coders to find new work in software as it is for an Uber driver to find a rider. And so, you know, the matching parameters in those two use cases, the sort of like motive is the same, but the matching parameters are very different. It's all about safety and location in the Uber use case. If an Uber driver takes me from A to B and they're not a creep and they do it safely, then I'll give them five stars. But software development is this fundamentally abstract space where like, I think that I'm getting a treehouse, and you think that you're building me a rocking chair and also there's this non-fungibility of, of the coders where a senior software engineer that does Python in Texas is way different from someone who has two years experience and is from East Asia. And so there's this non-fungibility of, I'm going to call coders resources here because for this use case they are, but as a humanist, I don't like that language. So basically there's the matching engine where you have to figure out what skill sets are even worth marketing this bounty to. And that matching is still something that we're tuning quite, quite frankly. But anyway, to actually answer your question, the money is escrowed on chain, which is a signal that the bounty pro- the, the bounty hunter is serious about finding someone and paying them coins in exchange for doing the issue. And then we have a start work button, which is a way of signaling, I'm serious about solving this problem. Here's my work plan. And then we have a submit work button, where if you're finished with the work, you can say, here's my GitHub PR. It took me three hours to do this. Please pay me. Then the funder can pay out the issue or decide not to pay out the issue. So that's the basic life cycle of a bounty. Is the payout related to like, is the PR needs to be merged for the funds to be released? To directly answer your question, it's completely up to the funder right now. Standard Bounties has this modular smart contract architecture where you could plug in a different address that can Mm -hmm. accept the bounty automatically based off of other conditions. And so it's been on our roadmap for a little while. We need to actually build it. You could build an Oracle where you could point it at a PR and say, when this PR is merged, auto pay out, auto pay out the bounty. Yeah, exactly. Surprising, surprisingly, the model where it's completely up to the funder has worked pretty well. And I think it's because 
people are sort of staking, they're not only staking ETH when they post a bounty, but they're staking their reputation. And, you know, it's open source and it's a small community, so no one wants to be the a-hole that doesn't doesn't pay someone out. For like 99.5% of cases, that's gotten us across the finish line. Every once in a while, <laughs> the funder and the coders start arguing with each other, and I have to step in and say, hey, guys, let's take a breather, and after a couple of days, we'll resolve it by paying out the issue, issue partially or, or something like that. So, so you so said a of- conflict resolution. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people in blockchains are all about trustless uh, OPSEC, you know, who's got the hardest money and who's got the hardest private keys. What people don't realize is that there's this second layer of just social norms. And if you create social norms on your network that no one should be a jerk to each other, then there's going to be people who go outside of that. But if you can build a a product that kind of calls them back, then I think that that's, that's just as powerful as the hard math security stuff. So, I have a, a silly question. You're talking about sustaining open source, and then you keep mentioning ten to twenty five thousand developers. You said that you had two million dollars last year, which works out to eighty dollars per developer per year. Where am I getting wrong on the math? Are these developers? How are they in your network? Are they full time employees? What are they? I think that transparency and data driving these conversations is something that's really missing in the blockchain space. And so uh, if anyone that's listening wants to pull up gitcoin.co slash results, that's sort of our source of truth for the network's traction. To answer your question specifically, there's 20,000 developers that are reading emails. But like I said, there's this non-fungibility of the resource there. And, and there's also an engagement arc that kind of has a long tail. And so the average bounty hunter in 2017 earned, like act, active bounty hunter that completed an issue, earned on the order of, uh, I think it was $3,000 or, or something something around there in the last year. But there's sort of a long arc of people who are just passively lurking and, and looking at bounties. Okay, so these are people who are doing it on their spare time. No one's making a full-time profit off of this. They're coders yeah. who like may want to help out. Sure. Yeah, uh, we do have a few people that are, I, I would call them in the subset of users that don't have access to the Western financial system and yep. have made 12 to 15K a year off of bounties. And that's their full-time job. For many people, bounties are just a way to... Incentivize work on a project, just straight out. Yeah, but it's also like, it's like try before you buy hiring for a lot of these companies. Like basically instead of doing a bunch of interviews and whiteboard exercises and then going from zero to one full time immediately, you can do a couple bounties together on work that's actually on your company's roadmap and you can stepwise and increase trust. And, and that leads to more work on open source, open source blockchain projects, but it won't be on our platform because bounties are actually a really horrible way to pay full-time employees for their work. So people yeah. kind of graduate off the platform. I think the latest number is we have something around 30-something bounty hunters full hired full-time. We call those our, our alumni. Cool. Okay, so 30 people full-time. Some people do graduate off and go on to do other things. A lot of people are sort of using it as a stepping stone. How many active people would you say you have? Because it can't be 20,000. The number that we report on the website is 13,000, but that's just like unique people who have come to the website every month. Yeah. The number of people who are actively hunting bounties every month is more around 500. Okay, cool. So another thing you mentioned was trying to be the Uber for coding. And so I was kind of curious what was going on with that because 
Uber is horrible at dealing with their contractors, right? I mean, they're known for it. They're a horrible company. Um, they don't support like unionizing or anything. And I wanted to make sure that you didn't put yourself in that category. So that's why I've been trying to figure out, okay, how many contractors do you have? Peter is an interesting right. point where you, you're the one who's actually doing conflict management, which wouldn't scale to 25,000 people. <laughs> for sure. But yeah, might scale yeah. to 500. So It's such a long, complicated thing to get in. Like the gig, I really don't like the term gig economy. And I think it's because the one that's been built on our fiat system has been kind of evolved to be extractive and to be the Uber example is it's enabled a lot of new liquidity for drivers, but it's also, you know, there's stories of people who have bought a new car in order to drive for Uber and then Uber shuts them off after a month because well, no one knows why, because there's no appeals process. And so I think that it's inevitable that the substrate for work is going to change because automation, because blockchain, because open source, because remote work. I think that that change is inevitable. I think that it's incumbent upon the people who are designing those protocols to make sure it's not extractive, to make sure it's not exploitative, to make sure that the users of these networks are investors in the, in those networks so that management can have a fundamentally good relationship with, with the networks. And so... I think that the gig economy is powerful in a lot of ways, but I think that we're treading in dangerous territory in a lot of ways. And I have aspirations to, uh, to solve some of those problems. And I think that blockchain is a fertile ground to be intentional about it. But I, I think that, that <laughs> those conversations would take up the rest of the episode if we got into them. Which so is the point. <laughs> we're yeah. going to talk about sustaining open source software, so don't, don't worry about it. Just very briefly... I, I, we want to get back to how blockchain impacts open source, open source software, but, but very briefly, like I believe fundamentally that blockchain is going to change everything about how money is transferred in society, like how the internet changed everything about how information is changed in society. And I think it's inevitable that we're going to change the way investments happen and we're going to change the way gambling happens and jobs. And so just to like pinch and zoom on the jobs point a, a little bit, how are jobs going to change because we're over the arc of blockchain technology being adopted? Well, I mean, I think that like bounties is obviously where we're started, but I don't think that that's a good substrate for long-term relationships where there's loyalty and, and sort of uh, if there's a high learning curve for whatever the use case is. And so I would really like to see a blockchain-based paycheck network. And if those things exist, they're not really well adopted yet. I would like to see a way of tying the incentives of employees to companies a lot better. And so with tokenization, we have a way of tying employees and employers options together because you're getting paid in, I'm using air quotes here, equity or or equity of, of, of the network. And so I think that that's an interesting way that blockchain could change the substrate for work. With any new model, you're going to sort of want to port over the, the old models. Those are sort of the old methods of employment that'll be it ported over to Web3. But then where it gets really weird and interesting is if you make the blockchain collide, which I clearly do, then you might start to think, well, what's the fundamentally new structure that's going to be enabled by this technology? And the example that I always give is an example that's rooted in hindsight because it's easy for people to grok that. And so the example I always give is Yahoo versus Google. Yahoo took the card catalog system and put it on the blockchain and there was a taxonomy of information. I want to look up the Denver Nuggets. So I go to sports, basketball, professional, Colorado, and I find the Denver Nuggets. 
And Google enabled this fundamentally new interface where you could just type in Denver Nuggets and you could be taken to their website immediately. What they did was they just leveraged the internet and they leveraged some really great technology in order to make that to make that happen. And so the, the sort of like par- parallel with, with the blockchain is what are the fundamentally new mechanisms for investments and jobs that Web3 is, is going to open up? And it's that, that design space that I think that that we need to start thinking about the substrate for jobs and also the existing problems in the world with value asymmetries. And I think that the number one value asymmetry that I'm focused on is the asymmetry between value created by open source softwares and value captured. And so now we have this internet of money where we can, we can program our values into our money because we have turn complete smart contracts and there's actually funding for open source software so that's why I think that blockchain is a fertile ground for, for solving some of these problems. Kevin, I kind of fundamentally agree with what you're saying. You know, you kind of know I do. <laughs> yeah. um, but like there is a kind of one aspect of that where I'm still, I still struggle with. I, I like to get your take on this, like, or how do you see this, you know, evolving? What you're saying sounds to me, I think it is, it is the future. It is what, what's coming, right? But I still feel like we need to get there somehow. So I'm just curious about like one thing is supporting kind of the the Web3 or the decentralized space developers that are working for companies or getting paid in bounties from companies that are in the space. How do you scale that to the larger open source ecosystem where you're talking about companies like, like Verizon or Adobe right. or, you know, that are that, that actually want to support open source or like how do you see kind of that relationship scaling or that connection between kind of the legacy operating system that we have in the world and the new operating system that you all are trying to build kind of on the blockchain right. of the stack. Like there is like a huge disconnect that I see in the middle. And obviously my work at Open Collective and, and other initiatives yeah. are kind of trying to, to kind of close that gap. But do you think about that? Do you think about like how yeah. you scale Gitcoin and when you sit down with like a super corporate company and you're trying to convince them to open a hot wallet with Ethereum and, you know, put it on an escrow. Like, how does that conversation happen? Does it happen? Or how do right. you think it will happen? Like, yeah, that's a really great question. So, I, I mean, I think that, like, for me, a lot of what you're saying boils down to a lot of what I'm saying is aspirational. And the, the base reality is that a lot of these big companies, Verizon is not ready to adopt blockchain. And probably rightfully so. The software is sort of still in alpha. I've been invited to speak at some of these larger companies and I think that I'm kind of like the blockchain gimmick guy, like, oh, look at this guy, he's building the future, or like he thinks he's building the future and I do my, my sort of like blockchain monkey suit dance. You know, I'll answer your question in two ways. Um, I think that the first thing that we can do is give people hope that there's actually going to be some movement here and that we can actually solve the problem. And I would really commend the work that the Sustain OSS community is doing that, a gathering of people with like minds, building relationships, talking about the problems, not being discouraged, and creating a community that understands the design space and is rowing in the same direction towards relentlessly trying to to solve that problem. And I think that the larger that wave gets, the more chance that humanity, society, civilization writ large will 
will be able to solve that that value asymmetry. And I like to think of like Open Collective and Gitcoin and Code Fund and Sustain Our Software and OS Coin as kind of like the open source rebel alliance. We're sort of banding together to create these conversations. I, I hope and create a community that's that's gonna some ideas are gonna bubble up. To directly answer your question, I'm not quite sure how how we're gonna get Verizon to contribute to open source. I mean, there's like conference sponsorships and there's there's sort of like grants. I mean, which I mean, more more than the traditional way that they uh, like. I mean, I'm not so concerned about them putting like a stand in a you know. JS conference or whatever. Like, I'm, I'm, like, if we want them to fundamentally start using tools like um, Gitcoin, if we want them, they are like, I think right. that it's still a conceptual and also a very procurement almost gap right. for us to be able to, to get these companies to put money in these processes that we're building. Because that's at the end of the day, really, that's where the big bags are. And those are the companies yeah. that we get involved because a they are the ones extracting the most funding or the most benefit i should say out of open source and putting in the like the list right so um in my own like in my small corner of the world whenever we we need to we kind of broker between the company and the individual developer because it's almost impossible for a big company to get money out for a developer in ukraine and send it send you know two thousand dollars to a paypal account in in, in, that's not that doesn't happen, right? So do you encounter those same kind of roadblocks when in thinking about Gitcoin and designing kind of tooling for getting more companies or it's more like individual to individual kind of relationship that you have, that you're brokering? Um, and if, how do you see that scaling, right? How do we kind of bring everyone into this side of the, of the yeah. future? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just answer your question directly by saying that we're really bad about this right now. The Ethereum community is weird and wonderful, but there's a learning curve. And, you know, we don't have some of the problems that you talked about. Like, it's no problem for me to get tokens to someone in Ukraine because blockchain. Like, they just have to have fiat on-ramps and off-ramps in Ukraine. But the technology is new, and you have to install MetaMask, and you have to understand how to manage your private key. I think you have to back up your seed phrase and verify a 12-word seed phrase when you install MetaMask. It's... MetaMask is great, but it's not ready for for mainstream adoption yet. You know, there's the broader question of if and when blockchain will go mainstream. When you went on the web, you had to learn new primitives around back button, refresh button, URL bar in order to use the system. And a big question for me is, are we going to learn to manage our private keys or are we going to just like, they're going to be custodied by some web service in the back and banks of the future will just be thinned out like Fin brands and customer service and like someone you can sue on top of uh, a blockchain smart contract. Fundamentally, I I think that it's still evolving and I think that we're still early. So um, I'll just directly tell you that I don't really have an answer to those questions yet. But um, I am hopeful that I do want to circle the point on the procurement mindset of a lot of these companies. I think that the difference between these companies feeling like they're getting something of value out of open source, well, they're already getting something for value of value for free by cloning the code bases. But uh, you know, something that affects the bottom line and packaging that up and and giving it to these companies in exchange for their financial support of open source software, I think that that design space is really nascent and exciting to me. It's not just large corporations that use open source, but I think it's also the cloud providers have to be some 
sort of part of, of this. They're the one of the biggest consumers of open source software. And I think that the cloud providers are going to have to be part of part of the solution also. If we're going to go for the big chunk of change, I mean, there's a completely alternative route that we could solve it, maybe which is just a million people with microtransactions. You know, a, a million guppies equals one whale. And I think that with the streamlineness of blockchain, that might be a possibility. But I, I think that we should uh, we should explore both design spaces. I don't, I'm not sure the answer, but I'm excited to explore that space. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. You said you like having a multi-decade approach to things. And then you talk about MetaMask and you know, <laughs> will people are going to understand the blockchain. I For mean, me, it's, a, a lot of what you're saying kind of boils down to, well, blockchains are really, really interesting and they allow you to do financial transactions across borders a whole lot easier without having financial oversight, which makes it easier to pay someone in Venezuela really quickly. Besides that, a lot of what you're doing on your website could be done through a database. It could be done through a MongoDB database, right? There's no yes. real reason not to have a centralized well, data point. A lot of it is actually, it's, it's made, it's way easier and like 90% no, of it's easier, people. right? So you would need like a hundred person company and a centralized mm-hmm. database, but you could potentially yeah. do these sort of bounty systems and we've yeah. seen bounty systems before pop up right. on GitHub. And um, that exists, it's called Upwork, right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're huge. They just IPO. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm curious about is you talk about the promise of blockchain. Then you talk about Gitcoin right now, which is nascent, but still getting somewhere already paying people, already doing stuff. I mean, it looks like you're in a nice office, so you're doing okay and it's <laughs> going to keep going forward. That's great. What's your multi-decade view? What are you excited about next that's like actual that you're planning on doing that's like goes beyond bounties? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So the long view is, so I, I mentioned to you that Upwork exists and there's plenty of bounty networks out there. Uh, there were 12 of them that I was competing with in 2017. Because everyone was like, oh, let's take open source and bounties and let's put them together. The play for us is we'll just become another extractive intermediary if we go down the sort of Upwork route. And Upwork, I think they're very innovative, but I think that they're, they're fundamentally extractive from their users. My aspiration is that Gitcoin becomes a network that is owned, built by, and for coders. And so what that would mean is that we find some way to take Gitcoin's equity, ownership of the actual corporation that administers Gitcoin, and distribute it to the community in some way. And I am legally prohibited from getting into more specifics right now, but you can, you can bet that something's in the work. So it's, it's very important for me to have incentives that are aligned between the customers of, of Gitcoin and the management of Bitcoin and investors. And I think that too too often in the Web2 world, we've gotten into a relationship where the investors lean on management to extract from the users. And for if Bitcoin's aspiration is to be a future substrate for jobs in the 21st century, then I, I don't want to be a part of that. 
So I think that distributing ownership of the network to the network, uh, pushing value to the edges is something that we aspire to do. You will see us experiment with things beyond bounties. I think that bounties are, we've gotten some success with them, but they're clearly not the end all be all, uh, have made investments in ethical advertising. As I mentioned earlier, I would really like to have a full life cycle coder funder relationship app that sort of matures the relationship over time with between two, two coders. So basically I've hired a few engineers in my day as a startup founder and the basic cradle to grave relationship between a, let's call it a coder and a startup is as a VP engineering, you have to source a great candidate. You have to select one that's good for you. You have to sell them on your company. You have to onboard them into your code base and your culture and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to retain them, right? Now, Bounties is really good at sourcing and selecting coders and arguably onboarding, but that sort of depends on how good your documentation is. So we've kind of got like half of that half of that funnel built. And so what I would really like is A, to build what's missing. I think a, a DeFi paycheck app where you can just kind of like casually, you've done a couple bounties with someone and you know that they're good and you don't want to have to really rigidly specify their work in the future. You just want to say, hey, here's 700 die a month. Die is a stable coin that's equal $1. So $700 a month. Just contribute $700 a month of value to my repo and I'll cut you off if you don't, if you don't do it. But it's implied that we have a trusting relationship and, and we're going to move forward from there. So uh, I, I guess the answer to your question concisely is push value to the edges, make owners of the network into users of the network and vice versa. And then also full talent flow management for software engineer and open source. Cool. Right. That's that makes a, lot of, yeah, <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. It, it kind of mirrors Pia's open collective in the sense that, well, how do we, how do we have value? How do we f- fix asymmetry? Well, we, we band together. And create yeah. ourselves. Yeah, we've been sort of talking about working together in some way. Maybe. I know we keep going around in, in. Yeah, I think we're getting closer to. Yeah. Being well, I mean, to- I mean, less in terms of open collective, more in terms of collectives themselves, right? Yeah. So more of an anarchist bent than anything else. Of how do you yeah. fight asymmetry in a world of, of global capitalism and yeah. awful autocracies? Well, you band together and say this is where we define where our relationships are, yeah. and this is how we're going to meet but- with the outside world. But so, so to me, that's the fundamental promise of the peer-to-peer web. We talk about this thing called Web3, which I think that people aspire to build this decentralized network where my hope is that employment looks like more like a mesh network. So as opposed to a traditional backbone network where all the information goes down one centralized route and there's a one-to-many relationship uh, between users of the, of the network and the centralized intermediary that provides the service. A mesh network is where everyone's chatting with each other promiscuously and exchanging information. And they've got different network topologies. And, and, and what I really hope is that we're building a mesh network of jobs and a mesh ne- network of purpose. And that's going to be what solves the open source sustainability problem. That's what is going to be empowers a new generation of coders to rise out of poverty, to use their minds to increase their economic circumstances. And I think that to some extent, it, like it's very early in this, in, this, in this vision. And the fact that Pia has sort of a similar vision and a different approach, I mean, that's decentralization. That's, that's diversity. That's, that makes the ecosystem uh, stronger. And I, I'm really excited, Pia, to work with you on the sustained community. I know that we're talking about 
maybe, you know, galvanizing that network together. And I think that that's sort of the starting point for us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. So, so talking about diversity, if you allow me, because there's one thing that I, that I always fear or not fear, but that gives me a little bit of pause. I share your vision, but when we talk about like mesh networks and like these kind of peer-to-peer communications and like normally the voices that get more heard or the, the spaces that are get, that get more occupied are by those who have a certain either confidence or position of privilege or ability to kind of speak louder or right. So do you think about that and in Gitcoin at all? And what's the kind of, if you have any idea, maybe you don't track this, which right. would be a perfectly valid response, right? We don't have any analytics on Open Collective, so I wouldn't be able to answer this either. But like, do you have any idea um, of like the, the, the type of demographic that your developers or the developers on Gitcoin Are are they mostly like your, right. you know, white guy from a western from the western kind of global north, or do you think that you've managed to kind of break through to other demographics? What's the mm-hmm. you know how many women do you think the network um, counts on, etc.? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very fundamentally important question, and uh, we don't track gender statistics. I do know geographic statistics. It's very heavily in the U.S. India, Eastern Europe, and we've got a decent usage in Africa. So mm-hmm. sort of the, the profile of the user that has found people don't ad- adopt new technologies when they're 10% better than the existing technology. They do it when, they, when it's 10x better. And so if you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have access to the Western financial system and you find Bitcoin, then that's a fundamentally 10x better thing than working for the deli down the street or some local software shop because mm-hmm. you have more liquidity at work. And so we do have sort of that geographic uh, distribution. I do think that when it comes to building the, the a mesh network of jobs, which is what I talked about in my last answer, I worry a little bit that blockchains are allowing us to uh, program our values into our money. Mm-hmm. But at least here in the United States, we're very divided about what our, our values are. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of people in the left, and I'm going to use generalizations here because it's how I understand the problem. They care a lot about creating upward mobility among underprivileged populations and, and checking, checking your privilege as a white middle-class guy who's worked in technology for the last 10 years. Um, I try to, I, I try to remember that a, a little bit when I'm, When I've had a bad day, just the, the, how much privilege I have and how lucky I am to, to work on something that I love and, and how my parents gave me that. And that was sort of the heritage that, that not everyone has. And then you've got another sort of side of things, side of, of, of values here in the U.S. at least. And I'm speaking through the U.S. just because that's what I, what I know that to me doesn't seem to, to care about that and wants government out of our lives and doesn't want and wants markets to control everything. And I do think that in the end, the, the market's going to decide. And Uber is a really great example of this where, where you know that their values are awful. But when you want to get from A to B, you might still take out the Uber app and go from A to B. And so I think that the market's ultimately going to decide whether or not we prioritize solutions that in, increase diversity. And so I think it's incumbent upon the people who are designing the protocols to Uh, to program their values into into their money, and, and you know, I wish I wish I had a more hopeful answer to that, mm-hmm. but I think that that's the way it's the the chips are going to fall. And and just to be completely candid, like 
I don't want to see, I just watched the Dem debate last night. There's a lot of like hand-waving away answers. I don't want to, I'm not hand-waving away the answer. Like we're, we're probably much worse at diversity than, than we could be. And it's one of our stated values. So I think that it's something that that's aspirational for us. Mm. No, I agree. I agree that, that a coin, any coin, it's, um, it's not just a coin, it's a system of beliefs. You actually encode certain assumptions of the world in that coin. So yes, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I, I absolutely love the most about the space is the ability for anyone to potentially encode their own systems of beliefs, of belief yeah. in a coin and try to get buying from others. And, you know, if you buy into Bitcoin, you buy into certain assumptions and economic assumptions. Right. assumptions. If you buy into a universal basic income coin, you buy into another, into other set of assumptions, right? So I think that that will enable a future where like a m multiple, hopefully my hope is that multiple kind of ecosystems right. that are for me are like new kind of political jurisdiction, yeah. right? Will, will arise yeah. um, in space. But we, I don't know, I raised the question because I, I, you know, I think we all, everyone in this space has to be mindful that sometimes mm. the kind of mesh network idea, it's great um, in the same sense yeah. that, The global town hall idea sounds amazing. And the internet as the new kind of global agora, it's a fantastic idea. But at the same time, like those who yell louder and have more access, you know, are the ones who are winning the conversation. So like maybe it's just my two cents saying like always think about this and, and let's yeah. let's figure out ways of breaking that kind of, you know, cycle. For sure. So uh, plus one snaps. I, I I agree that it's a conversation that needs to be brought to the forefront. Um, in terms of how we solve it, I'm pretty hopeful that aligning incentives is. It just sounds so high level and and hand wavy, but aligning the incentives, I do fundamentally believe that that can solve the problem. And here's why: the relationship between the network or or the company and the users is the is the important thing. And so, uh, is the company manager just trying to increase profit at all costs? Well, then they're always going to find ways to externalize the, the harm that they're doing. And whether you're talking about a power plant that's dumping toxic waste into a river or a company that doesn't bring diverse candidates into their, their flows because it's easier just to recruit from MIT. One of my real hopes is that we can hold ourselves accountable to not being extractive if we can make the users of, of networks into owners of the networks, because then if your owners will have, you'll, you'll have those concerns, the things that are, that otherwise would have been externalized away as represented as shareholder concerns and therefore be, be management priorities. So I think that that's a, that's an innovative thing out here in Colorado. We have this thing called a B corporation, which is a, If you're a director of a for-profit corporation, then your job as a manager is to increase shareholder value at all costs. This is an actual legal structure that puts public benefit into the bottom line. So managers can legally make choices that are not only in line with profit, but are in line with benefit of, of the community. And so I think that that's another novel thing that, that I hope will be, will be adopted as we sort of try to figure out how to solve this problem and not externalize harm anymore. I mean, maybe an, another way of putting it, and those all sound great, is there's no solution, right? We're not solving the problem. We're, we're addressing it. We're, we're talking to it. I mean, mm -hmm. th this entire fundamental thing about sustaining 
is really because open source is great if you want to share it with everyone. Hey, I made this, everyone take it. And then you have bad actors who then take it and then build giant corporations on top of it. And they have to pay you. No, you give away for free. And so it's like, uh, but you don't, you know, we're working on solutions and it sounds like Bitcoin is doing pretty well and working on it. And thank you so much for chatting. I think that's pretty much around time for what we can do with this conversation. So I want to thank you and let's move on to picks. Before we do that, if you don't mind, I know that this podcast will be released in about a month. Kevin, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the event that is being planned for next uh, February, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. So uh, I went to the Sustain conference last year in London, which Open Collective and others were sponsoring and and running. I had a cold, so I only made it halfway through the day. But uh, it was really amazing conversation with really amazing people about open source sustainability. And I've been busy with Gitcoin, so I haven't I haven't followed that movement too much, but have sort of come to the realization along with a few others in the blockchain sustainability space that these conversations are really important. And we sort of want to pinch and zoom on the Web3 blockchain angle of open source sustainability. So are tentatively planning a one-day Web3 Open Source Sustainability Summit out here in Boulder, Colorado. So there's this thing called ETH Denver, which is one of, I think it's actually the biggest Ethereum hackathon that exists right now in, in the Ethereum space. And it's every every February in Colorado. And so the idea was just one day before the ETH Denver hackathon, we're going to host several luminaries, several speakers that are at the intersection of open source sustainability and Web3 slash blockchain. And so the whole idea is to sort of pinch and zoom and create conversations within that niche of the sustained community. The details will hopefully be announced by the time this podcast is is out. But if you Google sustain OSS Web3 Boulder, then you'll be able to find the answers. And I think that we're standing on the shoulders of giants with the sustain OSS community in order to pull this off. Fantastic. That's great. Looking forward to that. Same. I hope you guys can make it. Yeah. We're trying to cut down on emissions, but <laughs> now that I'm in Europe. But um, yeah, for sure. That's so cool. One last question I have, Kevin, and I've, I've, I'd love to hear this. I haven't asked you this. Outside of our circle of companies and, and projects that we're involved in, who do you see is making the biggest impact in the blockchain space for sustainability outside of outside of this circle? Yeah, I, mean, I suppose it would depend on who you would define as as the circle. But I think that what Volokdal is doing is interesting. They've raised two million dollars and it sits in a smart contract where anyone can request money to make the Ethereum community better and open source better. And just the fact that they've raised two million dollars in six months and have distributed 100K, I think is really interesting. I think what OSCoin is doing is really super interesting. And I know we're trying to get to pick them, so I'll describe them as concisely as I can. So we've got this algorithm called OSRank that is a modified version of PageRank, which basically looks at the dependency tree of open source software, the macro organism that is open source software, and figures out which are the most important software products out there algorithmically. And it's based off of PageRank. So in a similar way that PageRank is 
hopefully not gameable. OS rank will hopefully not be gameable. And they're basically launching a whole new blockchain called OS Coin that's going to distribute rewards to software maintainers. And it's looking like they're going to be a tens, maybe on the order of a hundred million dollar network. And so if you've got inflation funding of this monetary supply going to software maintainers, it could be a very big distribution of, of, of rewards to open source software, assuming that open source maintainers aren't burnt out on blockchain and they actually care to claim their tokens, which is maybe not a safe assumption after the 2017 boom. But I, I think that they're interesting. You know, it's, it's one of the fundamentally Web3 native models that are going to be used to sustain open source, which I've really been laser focused on. And there's been a few here and there that have been emerging. I expect that we'll talk about more of them at Sustain Web3 Boulder. Sweet. Thank you. All right. Any, anything else, Eric? You all good? No, that was it. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> cool. Oh, you know what? Actually, while Eric is on the mic, I just want to interject really quickly that um, ethical advertising, I have to briefly, briefly shill. And full disclosure, Eric and I are partners with CodeFund. But there's this whole idea with, this is a Web3 native sustainability thing that isn't blockchain-based. So basically, as there's been more data leaks, as GDPR has come out, uh, control of data has moved from being an asset where people used to just always collect it and say, hey, we'll throw it in some ML model down the line. Like, let's just collect everything to being more of a liability where you can get fined for having too much data and fined for not being for being in control of your user's data and being flippant about it. And so I think that ethical advertising, hopefully in, in this Web3 epoch that we're building, will be the future of all advertising and consumers will learn to put a price on their data and will not just give it up to whatever website they go to. So I, I will say that I am excited about ethical advertising and watching that blossom as control of data moves from being an asset to being a liability too. Also totally agree with that. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that both of you happen to work or be partners with you know, CodeFund and Gitcoin. It's yeah. all cool because these are great projects and that's why we're here. I mean, if we never had to mention Open Collective, I don't know how far this podcast would get. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. I wouldn't worry about it. I have to tie my lips. <laughs> <laughs> cool. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. I think we should wrap it up at some point. And I hate to be that guy, but you've put me there. So here I am being that guy. So this is the picks. I don't have a lot today. I'll just go first because it's easier. Kevin, you traditionally go last, so you have time to think of it. Refined GitHub is a Chrome extension that makes GitHub easy to use. I had to go through 1,500 issues that I had to pile up this week. Wow. Um, and it took me two hours because Refined GitHub really helps you easily go through tons and tons of issues. Very, very useful browser plugin. I also have another one I use, which I don't know how to link, but I've completely hid the notifications icon on GitHub using a CSS trick. So get like a CSS enabling browser thing and then just add minus that icon 
so that when I go on GitHub, I don't constantly have this little red dot in my head saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. But instead, it's like, oh, I have no notifications, nothing's happening. I guess I'll focus on my work now. Those two things have really helped me out. Unfortunately, the no notification CSS hack may have led to me having 1,500 notifications. <laughs> I don't know. But if you're a developer and you have too much stuff going on, I highly suggest those two things. And then my final pick is going to be the band Fortet, who also really helped me out with focusing this week. Super great. Eric, what do you got? Yeah, I got a couple of picks. The first one, running a small business is hard. Finding the right CRM tool is even harder. Jeez, I sound like a commercial. We tried out this product that they require you to commit a full year. And it's quite unfortunate that we did that. But we ended up moving over to Pipedrive. And Pipedrive, I've found, based there's certain things about Pipedrive that, that exceeds every other tool. Now, I'm, I'm responsible for the sales, for the publisher success, and for the customer success, for the advertiser success. So I run like all communications essentially for our whole company with everybody involved. And it is a hard job. So what I've set up with Pipedrive is that I have basically uh, uh, pipelines with all of my different contacts that I'm in the process of communicating with. And it allows me to have a very visual way to know who do I need to talk to today? So literally, I can go to Pipedrive right now and see like, okay, I have eight people that I need to talk to today about this. And here's a template that I built for that communication and all of that stuff. So and then once I send it, I can um, I can trigger another update. So I may have picked this last week. I apologize. But you know what? It's on top of mine, and I'm so excited about it. And they deserve, <laughs> they deserve this. So, you know, hey. I don't keep a list of what I'm picking. So I just messaged Eric being like, didn't you pick this last week? Yeah, I'm sure I did. But it was Are you getting paid? Are you an ad? I'm not getting paid. I don't have a referral link or anything like that. I just, I just, look, for those people who are in my shoes, this is an important tool to look at. Awesome. Uh, the other thing I'm going to pick is uh, an initiative that was done by, uh, I think you pronounce his name, Biljan Ibrahim. He was at Sustain Summit in last year or yeah in london and he created this document called oss fund and you can get there by going to oss.fund what this contains is all of the different ways broken down on how you can generate funding for open source projects now he has it looks like i don't know maybe 50 or 60 different monetization platforms he also breaks them down by business model resources so you can go in and and view um, a blog post written by people who understand business models for sustaining open source. And then finally, he lists out these grant programs. But it's a fantastic, fantastic resource that kind of takes what Nadi Eggball did with the Lemonade Stand and, ex- and it explodes it by, by really creating a, a very consumable document. So you can get that at oss.fund. And those are my picks. Awesome. Thank you. Pia? So I had two picks, but then I have a third one following your your picks, Richard. So my first pick is a weird one. I got into kind of a little bit into biohacking last year because I was always tired and I couldn't figure out what on earth was going on. So I started kind of going down the rabbit hole of tracking my sleep, my whatever, my paces, what I eat, what I don't, the smoothies, hence all the kale and spinach and, you know, whatever that I've been eating. And I discovered recently this new um, device called Whoop that tracks your recovery and your strain. I find that the data is super accurate. Sleep data is 
the best that I've seen. I haven't used Apple Watch, so I can't compare with that, but I don't particularly need all the notifications on my wrist. I just want a device that can track what I um, how I sleep and my daily strain. And the most beautiful part of it is, is instead of having to take it out to plug it in at night when you're sleeping and you actually want to track your sleep, is it has like a, this cute little battery pack that you just put on your wrist and keep going. So it's um, super cool. I recommend. Whoop. No referral, no anything at all. I'm just testing it, but I like it. My second pick is, uh, it's a bit of an announcement and also an invitation. On the 20th of September, Open Collective is going um, on strike uh, for the climate. So there is a global, uh, global climate strike on the 20th. All Our website is going green. Uh, our team is taking the day off to do climate activism we are inviting also collectives to kind of green out their, their collectives page if they want to. But I'm kind of inviting companies, all of you guys and everyone listening out there in the wild to consider joining the global um, strike for climate on the 20th. And my last pick um, that came from Richard's picks is Octobox. I use Octobox for notifications. It absolutely saves my life. I know Ben was on the podcast recently, but I don't know when that's going out. I honestly suggest using Octobox to kind of manage the madness of GitHub notifications. Whole of Open Collective team is on that, and we've been so much better at replying and, you know, tracking issues. And I don't know, it feels like we are more on top of things. Maybe it's an illusion, but it certainly feels like it. And that's that's already a win. So there. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Octobox is super cool. I suggest that we had um, Ben Jam on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, great team, great product. All right, Kevin, what do you got? So those who've been following me on Twitter know that I've gone full on ergo over the last two or three weeks. And the reason for that is that I'm sort of a keyboard jockey that spends a lot of time in front of a computer. I mean, I'm trying to build a startup. And I've just gotten into this habit of being wrapped up in and having a lot of lower back pain, upper back pain, and just back pain in general. So I've been doing lots of things to solve it. I've been doing ab workouts. I've, I've been taking, taking vitamins that are supposed to help with that. But the hill that I just climbed is relearning how to type on an ergonomic keyboard and using an ergonomic mouse. And it's pretty trippy. Every time I hit the enter button with my thumbs instead of my pinky finger, I am just amazed that when I, when I first used the, the ergonomic keyboard, it felt like my, my mind machine link had been severed. And, and now it just feels natural after five or six days. And I'm so glad that I did it because the ergonomic keyboard allows me to keep my shoulders back. So I uh, would, would recommend going ergo. The, the model of keyboard I have is the Advantage Kinesis 2, which is a, a sort of weird split keyboard that has some concave areas that you can put your hands when you, when you type and that's been much better for typing for me. The second pick that I have is gratitude journaling. I have just started doing gratitude journaling about two and a half months ago. And the reason for that is that there's a negativity bias in the mind where you'll only notice things that are on fire. And as a startup founder, something is always on fire somewhere close to me. And so just remembering that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, remembering all the people who've created open source software in my dependencies, remembering the fact that I have indoor plumbing and like fresh water that I can wash my dishes with is just reminds me of how fundamentally good 
things are and how we take things for granted. And I think it's a portal portal to joy. So set a reminder on your tell Siri, set a reminder every weekday to do some gratitude journaling. I think that it's helped me be more positive. And then the last pick I have is the album Deep Chord by Echo Space, which is just kind of like a trippy album to code to. And I've been trying to do a lot of coding recently since I fixed my ergo issues. So Deep Chord by Echo Space is kind of a an electronic I can't code to anything that has that has words in it because it interferes with my ability to reason about what's on the screen. And it's just been my coding album this week. Thanks for having me on, y'all. Thank you. And thank you for bringing up gratitude journaling. I do that every morning before I do my tasks, and it's super useful. Um, That's fun. And not even just useful. It's just, it's human and nice. And thank you. Uh, thank you for being on this podcast. It was so awesome to have you. And uh, maybe see you at Boulder. All right. Catch you guys. Bye. Yeah. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.